Amen. Man, it is exciting to be here with you this first Sunday of 2019. For those of you who are seeking to make this the kind of the new pattern, you've kind of fallen away, you've not been in church before, and so this is new for you. Welcome. Uh, we have been as a body journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians over some course of months, uh, and then for the last couple of months, we've been journeying through a, a topic of Christian worship, and today we picked that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, so you can begin to make your way there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. I can think about kind of two experiences I've had uh, among many that have been just especially powerful or just uh, impactful to me in my life, uh, experiences of God. One of these, I was, I was in college and I was prepping to go be a summer missionary in Budapest, Hungary. And so as I was prepping to do this, I decided that I wanted to, to read through the Bible at an accelerated pace and really just kind of invest myself in the Word. So I took uh, about 90 days, took about three months and just read the entirety of Scripture in those three months, just really investing myself and spending big chunks of time reading his word. And, and when I would finish reading, then I had journals, and I would journal just, these are the things God is showing me as I kind of move through his word, and as I learn more about who he is, and, and more about what his word says to me, and who his word would have me be amongst my friends and community there in College Station, Texas, and amongst those whom he was, to whom he was sending me. So it's just an incredibly powerful time, and I, I found one of these journals a couple of years ago and was looking at it. I was just amazed at all the truths that God was teaching me and imprinting upon my heart and preparing uh, me for the things that he had that summer and the things that he had in years to come. It was just an amazing experience of God. I think back to when uh, Valerie and I hadn't been uh, in Prague too terribly long, and we were part of this young church plant and we saw God do just amazing things. We saw hardened atheists and agnostics come and join us in this English-speaking church and come to faith in the most unlikely and unbelievable of ways. I remember having a conversation with this Christian believer, and just to kind of give you a picture of what it's like, and we had a picture of her on our website, and she said, can you take the picture of me off of the website? You know, my parents are good atheists, and they just wouldn't feel comfortable with their daughter on a Christian church's website. So it's just the kind of place where we were. But even in that place, in that hostile environment, we were seeing people come to faith, and I was having this, this palpable sense of God's presence each and every day, and this, this, this overwhelming sense of, of urgency about our work, and it was such an incredibly powerful experience of God in my life at that time. But what we're going to see in this passage as we journey through it together is that our powerful past experiences of God are insufficient to maintain a vibrant relationship with God. And all of us have stories that are similar to this. I remember when I was baptized, or I remember when I came to faith, or I remember this, this period of kind of uninterrupted experience of God in my life. In, in, in a lot of these moments, we kind of journey back to these in our mind, and we kind of calibrate our lives, and, and we understand where we are on the basis of this past experience of God. But this past experience of God might not be indicative, might not be accurate in describing where you currently are with God. Our past experiences of God are insufficient to maintain vibrant relationship with God. Look at what Paul writes to this church in Corinth. Let's look at the first few verses together, and then we'll unpack them. 
Starting at verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul does a couple of things right here that are just absolutely amazing and just foundational to building their identity in Christ. The first thing that we can note in this is he's speaking primarily to a Gentile audience there in Corinth. And so he takes this Gentile audience, this group of people who have no long period of of lineage of faith, and what he does to them is he directly ties them to the people of God in Israel. Do you see how he does that? He says, it is our father's. So he says, it is mine, it is yours, it is us together. These are the experiences that our fathers had. And he begins to unpack all the various things that happened to them throughout the period of the Exodus. Let's look at a couple of these together. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud. And so you know that if you read through and and you come into Exodus, that God Uh, leads his people out and he does it as a cloud in the daytime and a pillar or a column of fire by night. And so this is the deal that when they would head out in the midst of the day, God would be a cloud over their heads, uh, giving them shade, giving them coverage and giving them direction. He would guide them as he went out, a visible sign of God's blessing, a visible sign of God's providence and a visible sign to them of God's existence and care and, and his beneficence towards them. He loved them and he showed that to them through being a cloud. And then at night when they would encamp, when they would gather around, God would be this this cosmic nightlight, right? This this resting assurance as he dwelt above them in a column of fire. He says, and all passed through the sea. As Moses led the Israelites up and out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army was encroaching upon them. They were coming at them. And all the Israelites looked around and said, Oy vey, we're going to die. We don't know what we uh, need to do. You should have just left us there. Uh, what's wrong with you, Moses? And so we know that, that God parted the Red Sea. But I want us to focus in and just look at this really quickly because I want you to see the incredibly powerful experience of God that they witnessed. In Exodus 14, in verse 26, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. And when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and a wall to them on their left hand. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Now listen to what he says. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They saw those that had imprisoned them, those that sought to slaughter them dead on the seashore. They saw their enemies laid waste at the mighty and powerful hand of God. Verse 31 says this, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. None of us, none of us have had that experience of God. 
None of us have been running from an enemy and God's like, hold up, let me just, let me just part the Trinity, let me part the Sabine, and those that are pursuing you will be sucked down in the mud, right? Raise your hand if that's been you. None of us. This is their powerful experience of God. This God who was a cloud, this God who was a column of fire, this God who vanquished their enemies, this God who delivered them to safety. Since they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea with Moses, they, they found in Moses one who represented God, one who led them to God. They had this shared powerful experience. He said all ate the same spiritual food. In Exodus 16, we have this picture that the Israelites are there, and they're thinking, what are we going to eat? And so God causes manna, he causes food to remain on the ground after the dew lift. And so he, he provided for them food, and so he provided for them safety, he provided for them security, he provided for them covering and direction, and he provided for them nourishment. But still they make it out, and, and they're wandering around, and, and, and they get thirsty, as many of us do. And so Exodus 17, the people say, oh, we have nothing to drink. What are we going to do? So Moses entreats God and says, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to walk over. I want you to strike the rock, and I will cause water to come from the rock. And so we see that at the beginning of their pilgrimage in Exodus 17 and close to the end in Numbers 20, God is providing for them water from a rock. They have the most powerful, the most potent, the most amazing experiences of God. And look at what he tells us here. He says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. No, they couldn't see this. They didn't know this. But what was happening, in fact, is as they were journeying uh, through the wilderness, as they were making this pilgrimage through the Exodus, that Christ was this spiritual presence for them, making a way, providing for them food and providing for them drink. He was the spiritual conduit from which the physical water flowed. Christ was blessing them everywhere they went. And so we look at this, and on the basis of this, if you were to say, this is a, a, a people, this is a group of people's experience of God, what would you say? What would you think that their life would be like? Well, you would assume, and I think rightly so, that someone who had had such a, a, an impressionable experience of God, such a profound experience of God, that their relationship with God would be fundamentally altered and different. And that's how many of us live our lives. We think our past experiences are sufficient to carry us through. As parents, that's what many of us want for our kids. We want them to have an experience of Jesus in baptism. And then we see that as the finish line and we're ready to coast. And we're saying, like, you can grow up and be a grandparent now because you've been baptized. You've, been, you've become a church member because you have articulated a confession of faith because you have made Christ your Lord. That's our finish line as parents. That's the lie that many of us buy into. Or we've set some low-level bar of spirituality and experience of God, and we say, when we hit this, we're good. This is what we want. This is a sufficient experience of God. I don't want to be a, a, a religionist. I don't want to be somebody who's overly spiritual. I don't want to be somebody who makes other people feel awkward. And I feel like I could get there if I keep following down this path to be closer and closer to God. And this is the lie that many of us believe. Even if we don't believe it, this is the lie that many of us live. God doesn't call us to singular experiences. He calls us to continual 
relationship. We see this group that experienced God in a radically profound way experienced tragedy. Verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So God's leading this group of people. He's leading them from Egypt into the promised land. And as they approach the Jordan, as they approach the border and the boundary, they send spies into the land. And you'll remember the account uh, there that when the spies come back, that they report that there are giants in the land. In fact, only two, Caleb and Joshua, say, look, they're big folks, but the land is great. And if God is with us, we should go in. But the people rebel. They refuse to go in because they're terrified of what awaits them. And so all those 20 and older, except Joshua and Caleb, never get to enter into the land. They never get to experience the fulfillment of what God was leading them to, of what God had for them. Their past experiences of God were insufficient to carry them onto future relationship with God. Paul connects this to us. He's told us that they are our fathers, but now he wants us to understand the significance of why he's bringing up something that happened in the Exodus for first century Corinth and why you and I today should pay attention to something that happened in the Exodus for 21st century living here in Greenville, Texas. He says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, an example that we might not desire evil as they did. We look at the things that transpired in the Exodus, and and it's not just a quaint story. It's not just a disappointing outcome. They are an example to us so that when we look at it, when we contemplate it, when we evaluate it, we are looking critically at our own lives so that the end goal might be that we don't desire evil as they did, so that we don't rest on our experiences of God, so we don't rest on our accomplishments with God, but so that we persistently push in and lean in and desire to have an increased relationship with God. These things are examples for us. Verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. What you'll notice in 7 through 10 is he moves through idolatry. He talks about sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test and and grumbling. This is the new year, and so let's, let's put a positive spin on it. He says in 7 through 10, he gives us the antithesis to what it is to be faithful in obedience. He shows the counterexample of what it looks like to be faithful and obedient to Christ. Let's look at them together. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Early in the pilgrimage, early in the Exodus, in Exodus 32, you see Moses goes up onto the mount. He's meeting with God and the people are left and they're thinking, what do we do? What do we do with our spare time? What are we going to do in the meantime? And so they create a golden calf. They create an idol and they begin to worship it instead of worshiping God. Now, you would look at it and say, look, I don't have very much gold. I'm never going to make a golden calf. I'm not very good with my hands. I'm not very good at these things. I have no idols in my life. We have a variety of idols in our life that are quiet and that are insidious because they don't want to be ferreted out. They don't want to be found. They don't want to be discovered. But an idol, an idol is when anything in your life takes greater value and importance than does your relationship with God. And so we begin to critically evaluate and look at our lives. We begin to ask the questions, what in my life is taking more importance? What in my life is taking more of my energy? What in my life is taking more of my focus than God? So we have to ask difficult questions. Is it my family? Have I made my family 
an idol? Have I made my work, my health, my name, my reputation, have I made these things an idol? Have I created some goal in my life that I've had to alter everything about my life and the way that I go through things so that I might achieve it? And invariably, what I do is I end up worshiping the goal instead of worshiping God. Idolatry is something that is alive and well within a 2019 heart. But it's something that we do so much of a better job hiding because we don't create shrines in our homes for idols and place them up and say, hey, Carolyn, come on over. Look at my new idol shelf. It's great. Look at this. It's fantastic. Come, come look at my idols. She's like, well, can I bring my idols? Yeah, come on. It's a party. Our idols can hang together. But we have idols within our community that we think are valid, and we, we uplift one another's idols. And we don't want to tear down the idols of the people in our lives. This is absolutely what we're called to as a community of, of believers and followers of Jesus Christ, that when you see the quiet idols of success and family and whatever it is creep into the lives of those around you, love those people enough to say, have you considered, have you considered that this may be moving towards being an idol for you? Do you see how that's a very different thing than saying, what are you, a moron? This thing's clearly an idol. One way you maintain and you preserve the relationship, the other you continue to go friendless. Do you see the difference there? So he calls us to not become idolaters as some of them were. He says you must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a day. So he calls us, as has been just this, this, this bulk of the teaching thus far in 1 Corinthians, in three or four chapters all about sexual immorality. And so if you've missed that or you're curious of what that might be, go back and read it. Go back and spend weeks and weeks listening to it. Sexual immorality, pursuing chastity, pursuing purity. We must not engage in things that, that, that the passions of our life would bring dishonor to our God. He says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21, what we find is that people are unhappy and they are dissatisfied with God, and so he sends fiery serpents out to bite them. And they're dying, and so he goes to Moses. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a serpent. I want you to craft it in bronze. I want you to put it on a pole. I want you to hold it up. And when anybody looks at that pole, they're good. They're good. And you got to imagine those in the Exodus are like, what gives? He can build stuff, but we can't. Why, when we look at this, is it okay? But we made a calf. He made a snake. I don't understand what's going on. And then Jesus gives us clarity in John 3. John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus, and he has this, this conversation that, that had to be completely transcendent. He says in verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he lifted it up, and everybody that looked at it was safe. Everybody that looked at it because they were following through and being obedient to what God had called them to, they were safe. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. They were, they were temporarily stayed the judgment of God because they looked at what God had directed them to. But what we find is that the Son of Man has to be lifted up. Jesus Christ has to be crucified. His arms have to be stretched out. He has to die and surrender his life. And all those who have a faith tether to him through belief have life eternal. 
Not a stay of execution, not a stay of judgment, but that the judgment of God is visited upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that you and I have life eternal on the basis of this. We must not put Christ to the test. Instead, we must be faithfully executing our obedience. Lastly, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. We've made an art form out of grumbling. We've made just this this beautiful, uh, precise art form out of grumbling. We grumble with with memes. We grumble on social media. We grumble righteously. We grumble for the benefit of everybody else. We blast people so that everybody else can know how terrible they are, and we sanctify it saying we're serving our community. But we look at this and say, don't grumble. Don't do it. When we grumble, it's evidence that the joy of God is not finding a home in our heart. They're allowing our temporary experiences and our experience of the people around us to direct our, our experience of God and how we view it. Your current, present relationship with God is sufficient to give you overwhelming joy through all the difficulties of life. It is. But it requires dependence upon you. It requires that you be dependent fully and faithfully to God. Surrendering surrendering your your dogged belief in self-reliance, surrendering your ability that you're able to overcome on your own. Can I just put an end to this debate? You are insufficient. You are lacking in ability. And that's the way you were designed. Like, don't take this as a personal challenge, please. I'm not asking you to be an overcomer, overachiever. I'm, I'm asking you to rest and trust in the one who is, who has overcome, finally and faithfully to rest and trust in Jesus. Not in your abilities. And when we do this, we have cause for rejoicing. When we do this, we have cause for celebration, even amongst the difficulties of life. And so we need not grumble. We need not complain. Because we know that God holds our life and sustains us moment by moment, day at a time. So he returns to this idea, verse 11, of them being being an example to us. He says, these things happen to them as an example. We can look at this and clearly know that they have this profound, amazing experience of God and they failed. They had this profound, amazing experience of God, and they failed miserably. Like God is there in a cloud, in a column, parting water, feeding them, clothing them, giving them water, keeping them safe, destroying their enemies. All of these things he did for them. It wasn't remote, he wasn't distant, he was up close. All of these things he did for them, and they failed. And just fail a little bit. They failed spectacularly. And we have these things for us as an example. And the text tells us they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. If you are a Christian, God has given you his Holy Spirit to take residence in your heart so that he might guide and direct you. God is with you, present, always. 
This is a cause for joy and a cause for celebration and certainly not reason to look back at our past experiences of God and think that they are sufficient to sustain us. But, uh, but having his Holy Spirit within us, it is a reminder to us daily, hour by hour, of the persisting, life-giving relationship we have with God even now. Amen? They were written down for our instruction. And so where do we go from here? He gives us just two takeaways here at the end of this. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In essence, he looks out at, the first, at those in the church in Corinth, and he looks out at us, and he says, who among you would raise your hand and say, I feel secure, I feel steadfast, I feel like my feet, they aren't slipping. And he says, who among you thinks he stands, who among you thinks he's doing well? And there's this, this expectation that some among them in their group would raise their hands or some among them in their group would think, this is me, I'm doing well, I stand reasonably assured, I haven't had any big mess-ups in my life. He says, take heed lest you fall. So what's he asking them to do? He's asking them, one, to be careful, two, to be humble, and three, to be transparent. To be careful not to buy into our own ability and our self-reliance. We need to be, as a people of God, dependent upon God daily. The days when I wake up and I'm short with my kids and short with my wife and just a jerk to work with with the staff, that's a sure sign that, that I'm doing things on my own. And that's a sure sign that they're all praying for me. God, break him. Bring him to the end of himself. It is Monday. I cannot continue to have this version of him in my life. Call him to the mission field. Give him a sickness. Make him go back to that taco stand where he couldn't leave the bathroom for four or five days. I need something, divine intervention. And sometimes they get their way, and sometimes I get mine, and sometimes God gets his. All of us are people as Christians, that God has perfectly designed to be woefully inadequate on our own. We need him and we need each other. And to voice that you need somebody else requires tremendous humility on your part. Not, not the false humility. I'm the most humble person you've ever met. I'm humble in ways you couldn't possibly understand. I mean, this is insanity. But the type of humility that, that just looks and says, like, I don't have it all together. I, I have issues I can't work through that I need other people for. And to move from humility to share that with other people requires transparency. That Jeremy or, or Jesse or Shane could come to me and see things in my life and call things out on, uh, in my life and say, this seems to be the things you're doing, the things you're saying, the way you're living, the, the, the way you're giving your time is inconsistent with a brother in Christ. The way you speak to your wife, the way you speak to your kids, it's inconsistent with a brother in Christ. And I love you too much. I want to be too faithful to God to keep from saying these things to you. And can I tell you, that's, that's not normal behavior. It's not. But it is Christian behavior. And it is normal for a Christian to engage. It's not a free license to engage and snipe at all the things you see going wrong in the people's lives around you. What it is a license to, to do is to be broken around the people around you and to invite them to offer commentary in your life, 
offer commentary on your family, to offer commentary on your decisions. We are a family. We make decisions as a family. Let the one who thinks he's strong take heed lest he fall. Then he comes back to this idea of temptation here at the end. He says, no temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man. This is good news. It's common to man. It's not good news that we're all tempted, but it's good news that we're not alone, right? And so when you're in the midst of being tempted to do something, you have this understanding that you alone are not the only nitwit. This is true. You're not the only weak one. You're not the only one tempted to be led astray. You're not the only one struggling. Other people have the same struggles, but some of them are humble or transparent because they care more about what people see in them than they do surrendering their heart to God. And to invite people into this transparency, to invite people into voicing of the commonality of experience, requires bravery on the part of the broken. That some of us would stand up and say, this is my struggle. This is what God is journeying uh, with me through. This is what my wife and family are going through. And just to be honest and broken about our difficulties and about our struggles. And as we do that, and as we begin to be known of that in our life groups and other small group settings, where we have some sense of security, some sense of family, some, some promise of confidentiality, we can begin to transform our relationships where they move beyond, hey, how was your holiday? How was your vacation? Yeah, that's great. Uh-huh, uh-huh. See you next Christmas when we have something to talk about. We're going to move to the profound. How is God moving in your life through the struggle that you had that you shared with me? This is how he's moving in my life. These are the ways I failed this week. These are ways I'm tempted to fail and rely on my own strength right now. Would you pray with me? Would you, can we go outside? Would you mind if we just sat over here for a second and we prayed? This is what he's created us to be, a people incredibly dependent upon one another as the Spirit unites us together. So we know that no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. And he has this, this transcendent statement, God is faithful and he will not tempt you beyond your ability, but with temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There are temptations I have in my life that you don't have in your life. There are temptations that you have in your life that I don't have in my life. And we could go down the row and each one could say, this is my temptation, and this is my temptation, and this is my temptation. And we would find commonality and we would find divergence. But if you are a Christian, each and every one of these things that you are tempted to engage in, God providentially loves you and cares for you and provides for you a way of escape and of avoidance. If you'll take it. But the difficulty in the midst of this is in kind of what we weigh and make determination on just like that is, is this momentary temptation better than God? Is the sin that lies at the end of this temptation better and sweeter and more desirable than God. And we make that decision just like that. And I can tell you, he is greater. He is worthy. But if what you rest on to keep yourself from falling when you feel like you're steadfast, and if what you rest on 
to keep you from falling into temptation when you feel impervious. If what you rest on are the past experiences you've had with God, these spiritual highs that he's led you through, they will fail. They will fall. They will absolutely disappoint. They are insufficient to maintain relationship with God. Maybe you look at your life and you say, I've never had a bold and vibrant experience with God, and I don't think I can. Know this. God's desire is for each one of us daily, repeatedly, to be caught up in an experience without end of him. And to do that in relationship with him. And the way that relationship with him is offered, is mediated, is through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. So the sacrifice of Jesus bids you come to experience the love of the Father. The sacrifice of Jesus invites you to come and experience the forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifice of Jesus invites you to come and be loved more wonderfully than you could have ever thought of. Come enjoy the relationship. That 2019 would be this formative year for you and for me, for us, for our city, for our country, for the world, and all those God is going to lead us to cross paths with this year. If when we're telling people about the good thing they can hope to experience, that that good thing would be Jesus. That when we look back at our experiences, we see how the experiences of God were preparing us for the journey with God right here and right now. The heartbreak with God was preparing us for the joy with God right now. It's preparing us to be able to minister to our brother and sister in Christ that is going through the same or similar things. He's leading us in bold procession, and he's leading us to deeper waters and deeper relationship with himself. Will you go? Do you desire it? Do you desire relationship with God? Are you sufficient? Are you comfortable in resting in past experiences with God? Or do you desire more? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the potency of your word. I thank you for your people, Israel. They are an example to us. Their experiences with you written down as instruction to us. Your spirit given to us as a guide. So God, I pray that you would lead some of us out of the temptation to rest and trust and relish our past experiences. Lead us to an understanding that, that better days with you are ahead and they are today. And help us who are weak to be strong, help us to do that together in community. And help those of us who are trusting in our own goodness, our own abilities, to fall on our face, to do so graciously, that we might be lifted up by you and those around us. Thank you for your great love. 
thank you for your word and its ministry to our hearts. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would move in this place, that you would stir in our hearts, that you would not let us go. Help us to be dissatisfied with our former manner of life. Take increasing measure of our hearts, increasing measure of our lives. Help us to glorify you in all things. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.